wake-up calls. Wake-up calls. Nobody enjoys wake-up calls. In fact, when you go on vacation, unless you've got an early morning excursion, you don't call the front desk of the hotel and ask for a wake-up call. You only get a wake-up call when you need a wake-up call, unless that is your parent. See, if, if you're a parent, if you ha- are familiar with some of these wake-up calls, there's the, uh, I wet the bed wake-up call. There's the, I threw up in my bed wake-up call. There's the night terror shriek wake-up call. Then there's the creepiest of them all, which is the children of the corn stare wake-up call, where you don't know why you open your eyes, but you can sense that something is staring at you, and you've got a child that's eye-level with you on the other side of the bed just staring straight at you. And you look at them, and you say, what are you doing? And they say, can I sleep in here? And you go, no! And take them back to their beds. But we've all experienced wake-up calls that are unwanted. But sometimes wake-up calls are necessary. In fact, sometimes we need a spiritual wake-up call. Sometimes we need to be wrestled free from a state of, of spiritual slumber. We may be in a state where, or a stretch where we feel stagnant, where our, our faith is not, is not active, it's not dynamic, where we don't feel like we're close to the Lord, we feel distant from Him. Or we may be in a stretch where we're mired in a repetitive sin that we feel like we just can't shake free from. Or we may be lulled into a state of cultural Christianity where we're deceived into thinking that our obligations as a believer is simply to show up to church every once in a while, to show up to men's Bible study, to carry the right translation of the Bible, and we sort of put on that members-only jacket that is labeled Christianity on the back, and we think that we're all good. These are times that we may need a spiritual wake-up call. In our text this morning, what we're going to find is that Israel needed a spiritual wake-up call and receives that spiritual wake-up call from Samuel in chapter 7. And this text is going to provide three ways for us to make sure that we are awake and walking with the Lord. So if you're not there, grab your Bibles, open them to 1 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 6 and chapter 7 this morning together. To set the context for us, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Philistines had gathered against Israel, and Israel was terrified, and rather than turning to the Lord, Israel turned and called for what? They called for the ark, right? They called for the ark of the covenant. They put their faith in this box. They put their faith in the mechanism. They put their faith in the method, rather than putting their faith in the God who was the God who was the the power behind the ark. And so Israel was defeated before the Philistines and the tabernacle was destroyed, it seems, at Shiloh and the ark was taken captive and all of a sudden the Philistines had Israel's ark and Eli hears of it and he he falls over dead and his two sons are stricken dead as well. And we're left to to wonder, okay, Lord, what's going on? Well, then the scene shifts to the ark being with the people of, of the Philistines and they're having some problems with the ark. They've put the ark in the temple of their god, Dagon. And the next morning they come in and Dagon has fallen down on his face before the ark of the Lord. And they take Dagon and they set him back up and they leave. And then the next morning Dagon has fallen down again on his face. But now his head is chopped off and his hands are chopped off. And eventually this leads the Philistines to say, that's it. We don't want anything to do with this ark anymore. Get it away from us. And so it's kind of a comical scene at the end of chapter 5 where they're sending the ark from one city to another city to another city. And it's like hot potato with the ark. They're like, we don't want it. Get it somewhere else. Uh, No, we're not taking it. You take it. 
And so finally, now we come to chapter 6 where we pick up our text this morning and it says the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what sh- where shall we send it? They said, if you send away the ark of God, do not send it empty, but by all means return to him a guilt offering. So they formed these tumors and they formed these mice, five of them, to match the number of the lords of the Philistines. And they put them in a box and they put the ark and they take the ark and they set it on a cart and they get ready to send it away. But notice what the Philistines have come to realize. They've come to realize that this is a result of the hand of God upon them. In fact, in verse 6, it says this, Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? So the Philistines are even aware of the exodus. They're aware of the plagues. They're aware of what happened between God and Egypt. And the Philistines are saying, man, we don't want God to come after us the way that he went after Egypt. And so they said, okay, we're going to send it away. But yet there's still this nagging doubt. There's still this prideful sense of rebellion with the Philistines. And they say, well, maybe this is still just chance, that this wasn't really God. And so what they decide to do is they decide to send the ark away on a cart driven by these two cows, but they decide to make it as difficult as possible for the ark to get back to Israel. And that way, they set it up to to be able to know, okay, if the ark actually makes it back to Israel, we're going to know without a doubt that this was God because there's no logical reason that otherwise it should have happened. So they take two cows who had just had calves, two heifers, and these calves were not weaned. They were still nursing, and they locked the calves up, and they take the heifers who had never pulled a cart before, and they yoke them, they attach them to the cart, and they send them off without a driver. Now, everything about nature and biology would say that those cows would turn right around and go straight back to their nursing calves. But instead, what happens is the cows take the the ark straight back into the territory of Israel. And what's more, they take it back to Beth Shemesh, which was a Levitical city, a city that should have been qualified to handle the ark of the Lord. The Philistines see this, and they have their, their suspicions confirmed that it was indeed God that had done all of these things to them. Well, the ark comes back to the people of Beth Shemesh, and initially it looks like things are going to go well. Pick up in verse 13, it says, Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted their eyes, they saw the ark, and they rejoiced to see it. Okay, this is a good start. They've rejoiced to see the ark returning. They're excited about this. But that's about as far as we get with giving them a thumbs up. From here it goes down, and it goes down very quickly. It says, then they rejoiced to see it. Verse 14, the, ark, the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there and they split up the wood of the, ark, of the cart and they offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron what happened? What did they do wrong? Well, number one, they take the cows that were pulling the cart and they sacrifice them as burnt offerings. There was a problem with that. These were heifers. These were female cows. In the Old Testament law, Israel was commanded that they should only sacrifice males without blemish. So here you have Levites, priests of God who should have been very familiar with the Old Testament requirements, the Old Testament law, disobeying a strict command of God, taking female cows and offering them as a burnt offering to the Lord. That was a no-no. 
Second, the Levites come and they take the ark down off of the cart. They forgot a very key and crucial step that Numbers chapter 4 verse 5 instructed the Levites always to do whenever the ark was going to be transported. And that was they were to first cover the ark of God. And so the Levites' first response should have been whatever was nearby, whether it was goat skins or whatever they could find, they should have been veiling the ark. They should have been covering the ark, giving it its due honor and its due reverence. But again, they neglect to do this. Furthermore, the traditional method of transportation of the ark was not on a cart, but on poles. And so they should, all, should have also been immediately calling for the poles to be brought so that the ark could be transported safely where it needed to go from that point. And then as we drop down to verse 19, it says, And the Lord, he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. There's question here in the, the translation whether this means that there were some of the men there that actually went and lifted the cover and tried to look inside or whether this simply had to do with the fact that the ark wasn't covered the way it should have been and that God's anger was kindled against them. But he strikes some of them dead. And it says there he struck 70 men of them. And there's a textual variant in a good amount of manuscripts that actually reads that he struck 50,070 men of the Israelites dead. And so God's anger is kindled against Israel. But what do we learn from this scene? What do we learn from the ark being returned? Well, what we learn is that even the Levites, the, the ones that were supposed to be the religious leaders, had drifted so far away from the stipulations and commandments of the law that they were kind of flying by the seat of their pants in how they were leading Israel. They didn't know immediately that they should have run and covered the ark. They didn't remember that they shouldn't have been offering these female cows. They didn't remember if the, the lid of the ark was lifted that, hey, we shouldn't do that. God doesn't really like us to do that. And so we see that the spiritual state of Israel was in a, a pretty sharp decline. But unfortunately, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. Look at chapter 7. After this happens to the people of Beth Shemesh, they have the same reaction as the Philistines did, by the way. They say, get the cart away from us. Get the ark away from us. And so they send it up to this town called kiriath Jerim. In fact, they don't send it. They say, hey, you guys come take it from us. It says in verse, chapter 7, verse 1, The men of kiriath Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You remember that, that the book of 1 Samuel follow, follows on the heels of, of which period of time in Israel's history? The period of the judges, right? And do you remember the cycle of, of how things went with the period of the judges? Israel would, would fall into waywardness. They would begin to worship false gods. They would begin to rebel against God and be disobedient to him. And, and then all of a sudden they would cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And he would raise up a judge and the judge would execute deliverance. And Israel would say, okay, we're back. And that would last for a short amount of time. And then they would fall back away into waywardness. And they would, they would be worshiping the false gods. And then they would again cry out to the Lord. So this is what we find ourselves witnessing again. Remember, Samuel was the, the last judge. And so Israel is in another one of these valleys. They're in another one of these periods of, of spiritual deadness, of spiritual depravity, where they've wandered, they've drifted from the Lord such that even the Levitical household doesn't know how they should lead Israel properly. 
And eventually, after 20 years, the people cry out to the Lord. They lament, they mourn, and they cry out to the Lord. And then look, chapter 7, verse 3, who comes back onto the scene? Samuel. We haven't seen Samuel in a while. In fact, we haven't seen Samuel since way back in, uh, in chapter 3 and chapter 4. It says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel comes back with the wake-up call that Israel needed. And the wake-up call that Israel needed can be summarized in, in one simple word, and that's this. Repent. Repent. Return to the Lord. And this call for repentance starts with basically a call back to the opening commandment of the Ten Commandments. Samuel starts at a very basic level with them. The first of the Ten Commandments is what? You shall have no other gods before me. So Samuel comes back to Israel and, and realizes that they have drifted from the Lord. And one of the main problems is they've got a divided heart of worship. They're worshiping false gods. Specifically, he says, Put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. The Ashtaroth were monuments set up to the wife of Baal. And this was a fertility cult. And it was a, a fertility cult that had to do with the blessing of the produce, the blessing of the crops. In Israel, because remember in the conquest, what was Israel instructed to do in the conquest? They were instructed to wipe out everyone, weren't they? And this is why. Because since they didn't wipe out everyone, but left them there, there was a culture of, of idol worship that remained. And Israel fell prey to this idol worship. And, and that's what they found themselves in, in that situation again. And so Samuel says, put away your false god and the Ashtaroth. Leave these, these false gods. Leave this fertility cult and return to the Lord. This was the first call of Israel's wake-up call. It's also the first call of our wake-up call this morning. We can write it down this way. We need to wake up and repent by bailing on our bales. Wake up and repent by bailing on our bales. Again, the command to Joshua and the rest of Israel was go into the, the promised land and, and eliminate everyone. But because they failed to do that, there was this danger that Israel would be lured away into idol worship, and sure enough, it happens. Now, though, God was calling them to clean house. Put them away. For us, for you and I this morning, he's also calling you and I to clean house. To put away the idols in our lives. And you say, well, I'd, I'm not involved in a fertility cult. Good. But that doesn't mean you don't have idols in your life. What are your foreign gods that this morning God may be issuing a wake-up call to you saying, hey, you need to put these away. Remove these from your life. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. He says this, whoever loves father or mother more, son or daughter more, is what? Not worthy of me. Wow. Jesus just said that we can even make our family an idol in our lives. We can put our spouse in front of our relationship with the Lord. We can put our children in front of our relationship with the Lord. Certainly, we can put money, we can put retirement, we can put a house, we can put status in front of our relationship with the Lord. 
And so Samuel said, you need to put away the foreign gods in the Ashtaroth. And, and for Israel, maybe it was even easier for them to do that than for us. Because for them, th- their idols w- were physical. For us, it's, it's going down and doing the hard work of looking inward and saying, okay, Lord, what are those things that I'm holding on to right now that if you were to come to me and say, I want you to give this up, I would say, no, I can't give that up. If you can identify those things, you've identified the idols in your life. It's hard. But we need to be willing at any moment to let go of anything, any relationship, any possession, any pursuit that we have in our lives in order to better serve, better pursue, better worship, better know our Lord and Savior. And those things that we say, well, I'm not willing to give this up, that's when we've identified these foreign gods in our lives. Jesus said elsewhere, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for you will love the one and you will hate the other. And so as we uh, look inward, as we, as we begin to spend some time with this introspection, we need to be ready to confess these idols, to pray that the Lord would, would remove them from our lives or change our perspective, change our, our affection for them so that they are subservient to him. And we just need to make sure that, that we're pursuing the Lord diligently, spending time in his word, spending time with other brothers in Christ confessing these things, not just before the Lord, but to other brothers saying, hey, you know what? This is an idol in my life. I need you to to be involved and hold me accountable on this. And so Samuel says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, put away the foreign gods and the Asherah. But he continues, he says, from among you, and he says, and direct your heart to the Lord. Direct your heart to the Lord. In fact, he starts out, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, Then he goes on and he says, direct your heart to the Lord. This idea of our heart in God is not a new concept, is it? Ten commandments. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before him, right? Complete devotion to him. Deuteronomy 6.4 starts out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart. Deuteronomy 10, 12, this is a little bit less known, but it's, it's shortly on the heels. It's again part of the law. It's one, something that Israel would have been familiar with. It says this, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? This is a big question. Okay, Israel, what does God want from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And so Samuel's calling Israel, saying, look, okay, Israel, this isn't about just cleaning up the exterior. This isn't about just getting rid of the Ashtaroth and get rid of, getting rid of the, the statues in your home and getting rid of the idols. This is about making sure that inwardly you are fully and 100% devoted to and committed to the Lord and the Lord alone. You remember Jesus is approached by a lawyer in Matthew chapter 22. The expert in the law comes up to him and tries to catch him. And he says to him, teacher, he says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says to him, the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And so this idea of our heart being devoted to the Lord, being fixed on the Lord is, is not a new one. It's not new for Israel. It's not new for us. It was the second part of their wake-up call. It's the second part of our wake-up call. We need to wake up from our spiritual slumber. We need to wake up and repent by taking a spiritual EKG. 
taking a spiritual EKG. We need to, to know where our heart is, how it's doing. Is it entrenched in? Is it rooted in? Is it fully devoted to, for, firmly established in the Lord? Direct your heart could be written, be firmly resolved. Be singularly focused. The other day I took my son Joshua to go see the Lego Ninjago movie. And uh, he's a, a huge Lego fan. And I told him the day before, hey, we'll go see it tomorrow. Well, all the rest of that day, are we, are we going to see it tomorrow? Are we going to see it tomorrow? Hey, Dad, are we going to go see that movie tomorrow? Hey, Dad, I'm really excited about going to see the movie tomorrow. We, are, we're still going to go see the movie tomorrow, right? Pick him up from school the next day. Can we go see the movie? No, your sister's not with us. Does she have to come? He was, uh, it was all he could think about. I'm sure he probably dreamt about it too. He was singularly focused on going to see this movie. He had his heart set in that direction. That's how we need to be with our pursuit of Christ. What are the things that, that fill our affections? What are the things that we spend our time thinking about, dreaming about, pondering? When we have those, those moments to ourselves. I love Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. It, it speaks of this concept of, of setting our heart, fixing our heart. It says this of Ezra. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He had resolved. He had firmly established himself. He had committed himself to studying the law of the Lord, to doing it, and to teaching his statutes and rules in Israel. And so the question is, are you as passionate about your relationship with Christ, your relationship with the Lord this morning, as my son was about going to see that movie? What are those things that you're passionate about? What are those things that you long for? Those things that consume you. Israel drifted from that. 20 years that the ark was left in some small town. 20 years of, of submitting to leadership that had no clue how they were supposed to lead the people of Israel. And they were content. Their heart was certainly not directed to the Lord. And so Samuel said, wake up, direct your heart to the Lord. And his final part of the wake-up call is he says, and serve him only. Serve him only. This follows naturally. If, if we're going to put away all of our false gods, and if we're going to set our heart to the Lord, if we're going to firmly establish our affections towards him, if we're going to root our commitment, our devotion to him, in him alone, it would then follow that we would then serve him only. Our third wake-up call this morning is that we need to wake up and repent by walking the talk. By walking the talk. This is where we begin to see the evidence of the fact that we actually have put away the false gods and the idols in our lives. This is where we begin to see in action the fact that we have set our hearts towards the Lord, that we have firmly established ourselves and rooted ourselves in affection towards Christ. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, it's put very bluntly, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That means if there's no fruit, there's no genuine repentance that's taken place. Repentance will be visible. It will be evident. 
This idea of Samuel calling Israel back to devoting themselves to the Lord and now saying, and serve him only. He's saying, I want to see your commitment to him in action. How many times does, did Israel before come back to the Lord and say, Lord, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. We're sorry. Samuel's saying, that's, that's fine and all, that you're, you're broken over this. But now it's time to see that life change taking place. In fact, Pastor Bobby preached on this subject not long ago when he was here. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Verse 11. How do we know what godly grief looks like, godly repentance looks like? For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, to say that's not who I am anymore. What indignation over who you used to be. What fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. In other words, nobody's going to be able to bring the same charge against you any longer. You know, it's one thing for us to say, you know what, I have these idols in my life. I have the idol of family. I have the idol of my career. I have the idol of my status. It's one thing for us to kind of let that facade and, and, and say those things. It's another thing for us to even say, you know what, and I'm, I'm committing myself to the Lord. I'm setting my heart, to, I'm directing my heart to him. I'm going to be solely focused to him, resolved to do, uh, to do better, to, to, to repent from these things. That's all fine and good, but unless the actual fruit is seen in accordance with it, it's hot air. And so as we seek to return to the Lord to experience the spiritual wake-up call, this final point is important. We need to walk the talk. We need to serve him only. We need to put our repentance into obedient action. Verse 4, Israel responds, So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. In fact, they gathered together at this place called Mizpah with Samuel and it says, Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. And when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel, verse 7, had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he might save us from the hand of the Philistines. Do you see the difference in chapter 7 and chapter 4? In chapter 4, Israel says, get the ark. In chapter 7, after they've received that spiritual wake-up call and Samuel has called them to return to serving the Lord, to being obedient to the Lord, when the Philistines come and gather against them, their response is they go to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we need the Lord. And the Lord hears their, their cry and responds to them. He sends thunder and sends the Philistines into to great confusion. And it says in verse 10 that they were defeated before Israel and the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. 
And Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So Israel needed a, a spiritual wake-up call. You know, there's times that we need a spiritual wake-up call. We need to be reminded that we can be tempted to drift into idol worship. And our idol worship in our culture and our society looks different than it did for Israel, but it's nonetheless just as wicked and perverse. We need to be woken up from a spiritual slumber and we need to root out the idols from our lives. Sometimes, though, we also need that, that wake-up call of saying, hey, you know what? We need to, to rekindle the flame within us and say, I am firmly established. I am rooted. I am committed. I am resolved in my heart to pursue the Lord, to obey the Lord, to, to, to love him. And then sometimes we need that wake-up call to say, I need to put this stuff into action. I need to make sure that I'm actually living this stuff out. I may be attending church, I may be attending men's Bible study, I may be attending small group, but is it, is it doing anything in my life? Is it making a difference in my life? Am I visibly, obediently serving God? Wake-up calls, they're, they're not always fun, but sometimes they're needed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths of the scriptures. We thank you for your grace and your mercy in the fact that you sent Samuel to Israel with this call to repent. Lord, we thank you that your grace and your mercy, it, it leads us to passages like this so that we can hear that same call to repent. Lord, I pray that if there are those here this morning that are in that state of spiritual slumber, that this would have been a wake-up call for them. And for those that are not, Lord, that, that this would be a great reminder of what we daily need to be focused on. We daily need to be guarding ourselves against idols. We daily need to be making sure that our hearts are established, that they are resolved, that they are firmly rooted in you, that we are singularly focused on obeying you, on glorifying you. And we daily need to make sure that we are set to serve you and serve you only in every business deal that we have, in every interaction with a family member that we have when we get behind the wheel of our car and we leave this place, Lord, we are serving you. We are never, ever not your servants. We are your ambassadors, Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Lord, may we be mindful of that and wear that mantle with the great, uh, with the great weightiness that it carries. Father, I pray that this message, that this text, Lord, by your spirit would, would go to work in our lives and that even now as we go into small group time, that there would be good discussions, that, um, Lord, you would begin to conform us more into the image of Christ than we were when we walked in as a result of, of your, your word, as a result of the scriptures. Lord, we're so grateful that we have them. And we give you all the glory in Christ's name we pray. Amen.